Welcome to Coach House Talks. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here. Um, yeah, let's just pray quickly. Father, just as we come around your word, I just pray that it'll open up to us, that you will uh, give us expansive hearts to hear your voice. Give us spirits which are respondent to what you're saying to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start a look at 2 Peter. I'm going to uh, take us through the introduction bits and the halfway through the first uh, chapter. So anyone who knows me knows that I love Line of Duty. So it's uh, just finished its last run on TV. Um, great, I love it. Cops uncovering internal wrongdoings and deception within their own ranks. And I actually had a meeting with somebody who's operated within that in the last few weeks. And Peter's, the reason I mention this is Peter's second letter is a very internal affair with guidance on how to spot deceivers and how to stay away from corruption in the church. Now, the final series of Line of Duty may have had a disappointing end, but in 2 Peter, we will see that we're looking towards a glorious hope, a climatic end that is without equal. As Christ comes again, remember Steve last week, he used the word perusia, arrival, um, and he used that, it's used three times in Peter's letter. And in the meantime, as we wait for this arrival, we wait for that promised conclusion. There are those who will speak against it. There are those who say, it's not happened yet, so it can't be true, can it? It's a vain hope that you're waiting for. And it's to warn against these false teachers, these, this rise of these false, false teachers, and their undermining of the truth of personal witness that Peter writes to the church. So that's the kind of background of what's going on here. Peter is seeing it and going, I need to do something about what's going to come and rise within the church. Now, Peter takes on his role as a shepherd really responsibly, with great responsibility. He wants the best moral version of the church that is available. And that means, as we saw in his first letter, protecting from outside attacks and influences. And in this, his second letter, a more urgent appeal to avoid being deceived from within. And it's roughly three years since Peter first wrote to the church and is encouraging them to stand firm against persecution. That was in 1 Peter. Now, this persecution hasn't finished. It is still raging. In fact, it won't reach its peak for another few years under Nero. So when the second letter arrives, we're still facing persecution. The church is still under attack. It's not finished and now we're looking at something else. We're looking at something as well as that we need to be aware of. And he starts by setting out a few things that underpin his message. So 2 Peter 1 and the first couple of verses. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have, the faith that was given to you. And because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Saviour, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of the Lord. Simon Peter. Now, first Peter opened with the use of his name Peter only. He said, this is a letter from Peter. Second letter starts with Simon Peter. Now, Simon's his original name. 
And Peter is the name given to him by Jesus. Now, there doesn't appear to be any rationale behind this, other than Peter's probably trying to connect and identify on a personal level with those in the church. There's believers in the churches in Asia Minor, formerly known of now modern-day Turkey. So he's saying, I, Simon, with a human nature, Peter, with a divine nature. Because he's going to go on and talk about this divine nature. So what he's saying is, I'm identifying with you. I'm no different to you people that I'm writing to. I'm just like you fellow believers. I understand the battle between our natures. I am identifying with the same struggle. It brings a closer personal relationship into this letter as he writes to the people. It shows one of care. And it shows the commitment he takes to fulfilling the role that Jesus appointed him to, to feed and protect the believers, Jesus' sheep. Now, this appeal is on a relational basis. I get it. I understand your struggles. I, too, am like you. Now, this is important because Peter is going to stress the importance of the relationship that the believers have with God. And we will see this throughout the first portion of the letter and we will return to, and he will return to it in chapter 3. Now, we can also read this letter as very personal to us, as it is fitting for us to understand that our relationship with God looks what it looks like. Peter's very practical in his teaching. Okay, he's going to show us what it actually looks like to be a Christian, even in times of persecution and with internal deception. Now, I want to say one thing. We often get Scripture wrong. Now, don't come and kick me. Don't come and beat me down. We get things wrong in the West because we interpret Scripture through Western eyes and Western culture. For example, we will always read you, when we see it, as singular, meaning me. Okay, It's the way that we think. It's the way that we are culturally biased to read and think. It's the way of the West. Now, these letters in biblical times, however, are not written from a Western viewpoint. They are written from a culture which recognizes that when you say you, it means everyone. You, not me. And it makes a difference how we might read the Bible as a whole. So bear it in mind as we go through things. So, for example, in Peter's first letter, chapter 2 and verse 5, the church was described as living stones built together into a spiritual temple. You are living stones built together into a spiritual temple. Now, most of the time, we will read that as going, oh, what is my role as a stone? What is my personal stuff that I've got to do? What, what is my ambition as this personal stone? Because we crave individual recognition. Whilst Peter is actually encouraging us all to sacrifice together for the whole. You are the temple of the Lord. So it takes away a little bit. This is an individualism that we try and bring into things within the West. And Peter wants to encourage the believers in how a relationship grows. Something we would recognize with this word sanctification. It grows. Notice his introduction right at the beginning. I want you to grow more. Grow. Okay? It's not a static thing. We grow together. We encourage each other to become more like Jesus day by day. To grow in Christ together. 
Now, the benefit of having a strong relationship based on truth, knowledge, and experience is having the ability to spot deception and false teaching when it rises. Something which is increasingly coming into this young church and is the entire focus of Peter's letter. This is who you are, so you can recognize who they are. Chapter 1. This is what they did. So you can recognize what they're still doing. Chapter 2. This is the truth. So you can recognize the lie. Chapter 3. Peter doesn't actually reveal to us in the letter what it is that's being taught by these false teachers. So he doesn't make it easy for us. He doesn't go, oh, well, this is what you've been taught. So when you hear that, forget it. What he does is he says, here's an example of how we live and we'll let you draw your own conclusions. So we're left to interpret from the text and also the fact that there is usually nothing new under the sun, the Bible tells us. Things go round and round and round and round and they're still going round and round and round today. Hence Peter points to the false prophets of old in his letter in chapter 2. The one conclusion that we can draw from the text is that there is some form of teaching dismissing the return of Jesus. A truth taught to the apostles of which Peter had personal witness. And we'll see why that personal witness is important as Peter states his credentials. Now, remembering our journey through Acts, we saw that waves of persecution throughout that period of history that's covered flowed in cycles of external and internal pressure. One chapter was external, next chapter internal, then external, internal. The same waves of persecution and internal pressure, which Peter is talking about. So it's with all that in mind that we'll read the letter. So let's dive in and see what we see. So 2 Peter 1, I'll start at verse 3 and go through to 15. I looked at you then. I wrote, I wrote verse 4 apparently. I did, it's on here. So from verse 3, and it's really important verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises and supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful, useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth that you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life, so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. So Peter sets out the entire basis of what's to come in his letter by reminding the church what sets it apart from everything and everybody else. God has given you, has given me, given us everything we need to live a godly life. Namely, Jesus has freed us from sin, rescued us from hell, and clothed us with his righteousness. So here's the goal. Spiritually grow by participating in or sharing God's divine nature. We see how marvelous and glorious, how excellent God is because God gives it to us. He gives us his divine nature by his grace. God accepts us as we are and his divine nature guarantees that we will escape, that's be saved from, this corrupt world driven by human desire and pride. But there's a hitch. There's always a hitch. We are still influenced by our human nature whilst we wait for our escape. Remember the Apostle Paul arguing that he does what he should not and doesn't do what he should? Now let's be honest. It's really difficult to be consistent. And yet, That is what Peter is urging us to be. Why? Well, because consistency and growth are sure signs that we understand the price that God has paid through Jesus for us. We can do nothing to deserve God's grace, but we make every effort to grow in it. So Peter's argument is this. If you've been given the grace and divine nature as a gift, then do your utmost to live out a life today that is based on this God-given provision. As a collective, as church, together, help each other to grow. In shepherd's terms, if you've become one of the flock and you understand the safety and the security which the shepherd brings to you, that you're safe, act safe. Stay within the care and provision and become more like others in the shepherd's flock day by day. Help each other to overcome. Encourage one another in faith. Build one another up. Supplement your faith, Peter urges us. So our faith, what is that? Well, it's our understanding of God's promises given to us, the promise that Peter says are great and precious. They are to do with our forgiveness and our favour that God bestows upon us when we trust in him and accept Jesus as our saviour. We are in fact rescued. So act like it. We are free. We are rescued. And you add to this faith, you add to this understanding that you are saved moral standards that would identify you to anybody looking in. So whilst anyone can act in goodness, knowledge, and self-control, anyone could show perseverance, even godliness. I've heard people say, oh, that person's a saint. So we can display godliness. 
we can display mutual affection and love. It is the object of these actions which is really important. Add them to your faith. That's the underline. That's the starting point. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 verse 6. So they go hand in hand and they demonstrate our changed nature. Faith, your belief in God's promises, is the cornerstone on which you build. Now, these things are moral behaviors that Peter's pointing to, which when acted on become, because of our faith become righteousness. Okay, that's what righteousness is. We do something that God wants us to do because God, we recognize it's God wanting us to do it. Okay, and in chapter two, there's a, bit, there's a couple of examples of this. And uh, it's also corresponded with false teachers whose lives are identified by their immoral standards. So even though they say God said do this, God says do that, their immoral standards are shown for us so that we can see that they actually lack true faith. So they act immorally. So whilst it looks like we can excuse our behavior because of our human natures that we are saddled with until our final rescue into eternity, Peter cuts across all of that. Okay? So don't get sucked in. Oh, it's all right. We can do what we want. No, we cannot. Peter cuts across this and encourages that good moral standards should grow in us. If you have faith in Jesus, then you will morally do good things. You will do the right things, and those right things will be counted as righteousness. We should be continually bearing the fruit in our lives of a fully understood relationship with God through Jesus. There's no half measures. Anything less than this declares to anyone with eyes to see that you have forgotten that we've been cleansed from even our old sins, let alone the new, the present, and future ones. The church brings glory and honor to God, Scripture tells us, when people see how we act together. Peter argues that if we see these virtues taking root in our lives, in other words, if we grow in these characteristics, they are proof to us and to others that we have salvation. The proof is in the pudding. Love that. The proof really is in the pudding. Ever notice how many of us decry our Christian faith or Christian life by looking at somebody else and convincing ourselves that we don't match up to what they're doing? Or somebody said to us that we need to do A, B or C to show that you're really saved. I was once told to get rid of all my rock records just to show that I was saved. And there's no thought to personal conviction or circumstance when we do that. What is God doing in your life? I have no right to tell you what God is doing in your life. Only you know what God is telling you you must do. All I can say to you is be obedient. Do it. God's convicting. Do it. And this earthly way that we look at things, this way of oh, I'm judging myself against somebody else, or I've got to do A, B, and C. I've got to jump through these hoops to show that I'm saved. All these are tools that Satan uses to stop us trying. Because he wants to stop you trying. You realize how hard it is to do the right things. It's because you've got Satan. You've got the ways of this world trying to stop you doing the right things. They appeal to our human endeavors rather than to the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. 
Now, Peter is and always has been explicit about having power in our lives. Really important. Of all people, Peter is familiar with the changes that the Holy Spirit makes in us rather than what we achieve by our own effort. Holy Spirit power, not human effort. Peter promises not to deny Jesus. Human endeavor, fail, big time. However, preachers faithfully after Pentecost in Holy Spirit power, success to the ends of the earth. Obedience in God's power and then endeavors in what we think we know. One will lead to failure, the other leads to unparalleled blessing and success. So Peter takes the task given to him by Jesus very seriously. He is diligent in his protection of the church from outside pressure and also internal deception to the very end. He never stops reminding us, never stops reminding the church. His words are never ending to us as a church. And Peter, even if he sees the church doing well, still warns them. Why? Because a church doing well today is the church that falls in pride tomorrow. We never think, oh, we've got there. We've done this. Hey, we've gotten where we need to be. No, we keep punching on. We keep moving forward. We keep growing. And perhaps Peter's urgency is because he recognizes, as he says in his letter, that he is close to death. A death that Jesus spoke to him about on, his, on the beach in Galilee. You remember when, when Peter is restored three times, feed my sheep, Jesus feeds him the sardines on the beach. Well, Jesus also says this to him in John 21. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you like. You dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to him to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. I don't think Jesus makes life easy for us, does he? It doesn't say, right, come to me and it's all comfort and it's all a bed of roses. Actually, Peter, this is how you're going to die. Now follow me. And it's possible that Peter's, or that Jesus is insinuating that by having his hands stretched out, that he's telling Peter that it's by crucifixion that he will actually give his life. And church history traditionally tells us that Peter was crucified upside down shortly after Nero's or during Nero's persecution, a few years after this letter was written, crucified upside down in Rome where he wrote these two letters. And he was crucified upside down because apparently he said, I'm not worthy of being crucified the same way as my Lord. So crucify me upside down. So Peter continues his reminders and encouragements to the church right up to his death. So that we would have his words and his example long after he's gone from us. And as a church, we remind ourselves of the commitment and behavior, the high moral code that is required of us who have accepted Jesus. We can't just say we've accepted Jesus and then not change our lives. We have to have a new moral code imprinted upon us that we then follow. 
We remind ourselves continually that God is sufficient. He has given us his divine nature in order to achieve these things. So we encourage each other to add to our faith the actions that produce spiritual fruit in our lives. And we add them to the church collectively. We help each other as we bring those gifts into the church. The more we do this, the more we will recognize error and falsehood. Recognizing the wolf in sheep's clothing. And we become stronger as church. We will see plenty, and we do see plenty of erroneous teaching in today's church age. Lots of it. So the relevance of Peter's letter should not be lost on us as we negotiate our way through rapid cultural changes which impact us as church today. There are lots of things that are coming into church nowadays from human nature that we're being forced to accept. And we can't if we've got to take on a high moral standard, which we're urged to do. So Peter wants us to contrast the high moral behavior of the followers of Jesus with the corrupt and immoral conduct, which he shows examples of in chapter 2. We are set apart for honor, not dishonor. Keep focused and keep moving forward as we add virtues to our Christian walk, moral virtues that show that we have a relationship with Jesus. Now, next week, Steve, Steve Went is going to take us through Peter's credentials, why it's important that Peter was an eyewitness of the things that Jesus told him to do and what that means for him as he comes before the church to tell the church what they should be doing. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' honour and glory and the confidence that that brings to refute false teachers when they rise up among us. So that's where we're going in, in this letter with 2 Peter. It's all internal affairs. It's all about things that will rise up in the church, things we should be aware of. But he sets his groundwork in. He says, if you're not behaving with moral fiber, if you're not doing moral behaviors, if you're not adding that fruit to your lives, if you're not building on and growing on the things that make you stand out as a believer, then there's something wrong in the first place. And you won't be able to spot the deception. You won't be able to spot the false teachers. There is an onus on us, but there's an onus on us collectively as a church to help one another, to encourage one another to grow. And I hope we do that. As a church, you know, we are blessed by having each other set around ourselves. God's not daft when he puts people together. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so we honor each other and we bless each other and we encourage each other and we build each other up in moral fiber on top of the faith and the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.